Well, good afternoon. So good to be with you all. Let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word that you've given to us. Uh, we trust that you speak to us by your word, and so we pray uh, that now you would speak to us, Lord, that you would shape us by your word, that you would make us more like Jesus as a result of our time in your word, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. And whenever we study the New Testament, for example, the Gospel of Luke, uh, it's really important for us to remember that we are studying something written by a first century author to a first century audience about first century events. And that a lot has changed in the last 20 centuries to kind of separate us from that original context. And so sometimes when we're studying the New Testament, we need to kind of fill in some gaps, some cultural and historical gaps that we might understand what's being written and we might understand why is this important? Why is this a big deal? Let me give you an example. Um, Consider the, the stories in the New Testament in the Gospels in which Jesus heals a leper. Well, we read that, and we don't quite understand the significance because, well, in the 20th century since then, leprosy has been largely eradicated. And so we're not dealing with leprosy on a day-to-day basis like they would have been back then. And so if we're going to understand the leper's plight and why it was so significant that Jesus heals lepers, and why it's so significant that Jesus healed them by touching them, Well, in order to understand all of that, we need to first do a little bit of homework on the significance of leprosy physically, socially, and spiritually. Or we might read a story about Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and how the Pharisees were really upset about that. And again, that does not translate to us necessarily. We don't understand why it's a big deal that Jesus would fellowship with tax collectors. And so we just have to do a little bit of homework, a little bit of background to understand the cultural significance there. I say all that to say, our story that we're going to be covering today, well, it's one in which the main issue, death, a young man is going to die, a mother is going to mourn over the death of her son, and instantly, without any background or any homework, like, we get it. Like, we get the significance, we get why this is a big deal. Sure, there's some cultural things with regard to death that we'll get to in a little bit, but Like at the end of the day, uh, death is death is death. Uh, This isn't like this far off first century concept that we need to translate into our 21st century American mindsets. This is something that we understand. Because if there's one thing that's remained constant throughout human history, even as culture and language and medicine and technology and society, all of that has changed a lot. What hasn't changed at all is that the percentage of people who die is still 100%. Yeah, we live longer, and maybe the causes of death are different, but we still have to deal with our mortality and the mortality of those whom we love and the fear of death, just like they did back then. So 100% of the people in this room and 100% of the people that we know and we love, uh, we're all going to die if the Lord tarries, and really it's just a matter of order. It's just a matter of either them going to your funeral or you're going to their funeral. 
unless, unless Jesus goes to your funeral, in which case everything just gets crazy. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So I have five points for you this afternoon, just to make it easier to follow along, and they all begin with the letter P. Our first one is the providence. Point number one is the providence. I want you to look at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Say, soon after what? Well, the narrative that comes right before this in chapter 7 is that Jesus heals the centurion's servant from a distance, and that happens in the town of Capernaum. And so soon afterward is referring to soon after that miracle in Capernaum, well, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And Nain... It's about as obscure a town in the Bible as you can find. It's literally only mentioned here. You think about all the towns and the cities that are in like the land allotment chapters and all the towns and the cities that people would pass through in the Old Testament. Like it is never mentioned once anywhere else. That gives us kind of an idea of how obscure of a place Nain was. Here's the other thing that we should know about Nain. It's not exactly next door to Capernaum. It's a good 20 miles southwest. That's a, that's a full day's journey. I think sometimes as those not only removed from the geography of the Middle East, but also just this very idea of even walking far distances. We don't walk far distances. Uh, this kind of gets lost on us. Uh, I, have a, I have a Fitbit on my wrist right here, and it, uh, it counts my steps for me. Uh, when they sent it to me, the factory default was 10,000 steps. I'm just a little more realistic, so I lowered it to 7,500 so I can hit my goal more often. Listen, man, when I hit my goal on this thing, this thing buzzes, it explodes. I get really excited. I'm feeling really fit. I'm feeling really active. Like, I walked a lot today. But you know how far 7,500 steps is? It's about three miles, which is about one-sixth of the distance from Capernaum to Nain. I think I've walked a lot. I haven't even come close to what would have had to happen here. And so soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Like, that's not a small deal. It's something that would have taken up Jesus' entire day in rigorous travel. And it's not only him. Look at the end of verse 11. His disciples and a great crowd went with him. They've been seeing him do these miraculous things, and so they don't want to miss the next miracle. They want to be there when he does something amazing. But now here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Why name? If it's, if it's that insignificant of a place, and it's that far away, well, why in the world would Jesus go to Nain? And the answer is in verse 12. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, 
a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And so here's this funeral procession. They're carrying the body of this recently deceased man out of the town because the Jews would always bury their dead outside of their towns in a small town like Nain. And the funerals were in general a big deal back then, like the whole community would come together to mourn, but you can imagine that would be heightened in a small town in which everybody knew each other. And so there's this sizable group. Luke calls it a considerable crowd who are taking part in this funeral procession. And so I want you to picture this scene in your mind's eye. You've got Jesus and the great crowd with him. They're coming from Capernaum to Nain after a long day of travel. And then you've got this considerable crowd of mourners in this funeral procession, and they're making their way out of the town of Nain. These two large groups just happen to run into each other at this choke point at the town gate of Nain. And so now there's this big logjam. Every single time that I'm driving and I'm about to get on the George Washington Bridge, doesn't matter what time it is, doesn't matter what day it is, like inevitably there is traffic. And like, I'm not a transportation expert, but like, of course this is going to happen. There's 40 different highways that all lead to the George Washington Bridge and we're all trying to merge into three tiny lanes. Of course there's going to be traffic. Now, that may be inevitable (coughs) with a bridge in the busiest city in the world. But remember what Nain is. Nain is not New York City. This is a small town. This is an insignificant town. Nobody important ever goes there. Nothing biblically significant ever happens there. And so if you're sitting in traffic, right, you're trying to get on the outbound George, it doesn't really matter if you show up five minutes earlier or five minutes later, like you're going to still be sitting in the same traffic. But do you realize... If Jesus and his group arrive five minutes earlier or five minutes later to the town gate of Nain, these two crowds completely miss each other. And remember, they're making this whole day journey from Capernaum. You know how much variability there can be with these all-day trips, right? Like five minutes extra here, five minutes extra here, a little bit of extra time at lunch, and all of a sudden, well, that would have added up. They would have missed each other. They would have missed this funeral procession And that body would have been buried already. And so really, what are the odds? What are the odds that Jesus and his group are making this all-day trip from Capernaum, and simultaneously this man dies in Nain, and the funeral procession is taking place, taking him out to bury him? Like, what are the odds that these two unusually large groups for this small town would run into each other at the choke point of the gate of the town of Nain? What are the odds? Well, the Bible teaches that the answer to that question is 100%. You see, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, that he sovereignly rules over his creation, that he has ordained whatever shall come to pass in his creation. And that includes not just the the big picture things like the earth's rotation and, and the seasons and the weather. That includes all the small details of life, the small details of your life, your train being late, your oven not working, who you ran into on the street yesterday. And so what untrained eyes might see as coincidences or or happenstance or, or luck, well, those with a proper understanding of God's sovereignty can see it as his providence, as his 
wise and perfect orchestration of all things according to his sovereign plan. And so it's by God's providence that Jesus and his group happen to run into this funeral procession. This is no accident. This is no happenstance. This meeting, this appointment was divinely ordained by God to happen at this town gate so that Jesus might do what he's about to do. Point number one, providence. Surely each of us could come up with examples from our own life of God's providence at play. The ways in which well, God orchestrated that old friend that I ran into at the grocery store or uh, that sequence of events that seemingly had nothing to do with me or uh, that missed flight or that cancellation or that weather delay that at the time seemed so inconvenient. Well, he uses those things to shape our lives in rather massive ways, maybe leading us to a new job opportunity, allowing us to meet our future spouse, maybe even directing us to hear the gospel for the very first time. In his sovereignty, in his providence, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And here it pleased him through this uncanny timing to bring this funeral procession into an unavoidable confrontation with Jesus. So point number one is the providence which brings us to point number two, the pity. From what we know about first century Jewish funerals, we know that in addition to the people from the village, right, the considerable crowd, uh, there would have been some hired instrumentalists who were there to play some music. Uh, get this, there would have been some professional mourners and wailers, like their job is to cry really loudly to express the grief. And you say, well, how does one get into a line of work like that? I don't know. That's another sermon for another day. Uh, but this would have been a very large crowd. This would have been a very noisy crowd. This would have been a very emotional crowd. But I want you to see how Luke's focus, and thus the reader's focus, and most importantly, Jesus's focus, is only on one person. It's only on the widow. Look at verse 12. A considerable crowd from the town was with her. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her. And now look at how the deceased is described. He's the only son of his mother. We're not told anything about him. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know what his reputation was. We don't know what he did for a living. The only thing we know about him is his relationship to her. The focus is entirely on her because Luke is drawing us in to her tragedy. And she's a widow, which means that presumably this isn't the first time she's been at the head of this procession from the gates of the town of Nain to the burial site. Right? Like she's done this before. The last time, last time she at least had her son with her, walking next to her, now she's walking, no doubt, to the same site to bury that son next to his father. And so on the two worst days of her life, she's had to make this same walk. And all the wounds that perhaps have begun to heal from her husband's death, now they're torn open for her all over again because now her son, her only son, is gone as well. It's really hard to compare types of grief but by any account, this would have to be right at the top. Right? A parent 
burying their own child, your only child. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, God on multiple occasions uses it as an illustration for the greatest grief imaginable, make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, Jeremiah 6. And now compounding that emotional grief of losing someone as close to you as your only son is the fact that economically speaking, socially speaking, right, her life as she knew it is now over. She's a widow. She's got no kids. She's got nobody to take care of her. She's got no hope for future support. This young man was going to provide for her and care for her in her old age, and now he's gone. Compounding all of that is, well, back then it was a very important thing that your family line would continue. Well, at this point, she's got no kids. She's got no grandkids. The last one alive from her family line is, well, it's her. And after her, it was done. So those of you familiar with the Old Testament, as an analogy, you can say that she is Naomi, but without Ruth. And you remember what Naomi says, right? Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Well, if the presence of Ruth, her daughter-in-law, represents this little glimmer of hope for Naomi, even as she says that, well, the widow of Nain doesn't even have that. Right? For her, all hope is seemingly lost. But point number two, the pity, it's to this hopeless, lowly, and despondent, pitiable, disconsolate widow to whom the Lord of the universe now turns his attention. Look at what it says in verse 13. When the Lord saw her. When the Lord saw her. I mean, there's dozens of people in this procession, and there is a sense in which Jesus sees them all, but Luke particularly draws our attention to the fact that he sees her. It reminds us of what Hagar says in Genesis 16, when God comforts her in her misery. She says, you are the God who sees me. You're the God who sees me. That's Jesus. He's not this unmoved bystander seeing this funeral procession. And he has compassion and pity on this widow the NIV says that his heart went out to her. He sees her, and he has pity on her. And that pity, that compassion, well, it comes first in the form of a somewhat bizarre command. Look at the end of verse 13. Jesus says to the widow, do not weep. Do not weep. Do not weep is something you say. I coach my son's little league team last year and eight-year-olds listen when they lose a baseball game they think it's the end of the world they're all crying and so here i am as the coach hey kids do not weep it's just a baseball game that's something that's appropriate to say when your little league team loses and cries but at a funeral that's not appropriate at all i mean you think about the last funeral that you were at imagine a close relative is is weeping uh, mourning and you just go up to them and you say do not weep. I mean, at the very least, it'd be viewed as insensitive and unkind and rude. That would not be a compassionate thing to say. Like, if there ever was a time to weep, it's at the sadness of death, especially the death of a young man, the only son of a widow. I mean, they hired professional mourners for this thing whose job it was to weep. Of course, it's appropriate to weep. 
and even Jesus himself. Everyone's favorite memory verse, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. He himself wept at death. And so certainly it's not wrong to weep about death. Right? Do not weep. That might be one of the more inappropriate and uncompassionate things to say at a funeral unless you can raise the dead. Which brings us to point number three, the power So picture this procession coming out of the town of Nain. You've got the widow, right, the mother of the deceased. She's going to be at the front. And then behind her, you've got the the pallbearers, and they're carrying the body on a beer, beer, that's B-I-E-R, not B-E-E-R. A beer is is a thing, kind of like a a stretcher, where you would carry a dead body that's wrapped in a shroud. Uh, And then behind the beer would be the rest of the procession, so the, the procession is making its way to the burial site. Jesus and his group approach the town gate. The two groups kind of run into each other. That's point number one, providence. And Jesus sees the widow, and he's moved in compassion for her. That's point number two, the pity. But, but you see how point number one and point number two by themselves, well, really doesn't amount to anything. Because point number one, the providence. Sure, providence might bring them all together, but if Jesus can't do anything about it, it's really just an inconvenience more than anything. It's just this traffic jam at the town gate that's going to slow the procession down. And sure, Jesus might pity the woman. He might have great compassion for her. But if he can't do anything about it, he's basically just a good friend. And that's in no way taking away from the value of a good friend in a time of distress. But ultimately, he wouldn't be able to change anything. But it's point number three, right? The power, that's what changes everything. And Jesus expresses that power in this sequence of seemingly bizarre events. I mean, just imagine that you're, you're one of the pallbearers and you're, you're holding that beer, you're holding that body, and you're, you're part of this procession. And here comes this guy and this big group with him, and he tells the widow, do not weep. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that's, that's kind of strange. Then he comes up and he touches the beer. He stops the procession. And now you're completely in shock. At first, the man says that, and now he stops our procession. And then to top it all off, he starts talking to the dead body. Young man, I say to you, arise. Now you realize at this point, like if that young man doesn't get up off that beer, well, all the people gathered, both his own disciples and the good people of Nain, all of them would come to one inevitable conclusion, which is that Jesus has lost his mind. But point number three the power, he brings this man back to life just by his word. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And naturally, we're all curious. Well, Luke, what did he say? As most of you probably know, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, I, am, I am not rooting for the Chiefs to win. I am just rooting for the Eagles to lose. <laughs> but let's rewind just about a month. Uh, even those of you who are not football fans, you will probably be familiar with what happened on Monday Night Football. Bills, Bengals. A player on the Bills collapsed on the field after a play in the middle of the game. They had to do CPR on him. They had to resuscitate him. And there was a few days after that where, where no one really knew if he was going to make it or not. Well, after a few days of no reports, 
on Thursday of that week, the report came out that he was conscious and that he had asked the doctors if the Bills had won the game. Now, he didn't know that the game was never finished. It was suspended because of what happened to him, and so neither team won. And so it was an unanswerable question that he asked. Like, if you or I asked that question, it would have been a bad question, but that's not the point. The point is that he asked the question that he spoke, which means that he was alive. So going back to Nain, like, what did this guy say? I don't know. Maybe he asked if the Bills won. It doesn't matter what he said. The point is that he spoke, which means he's alive, which means he can get off that beer, which means the funeral's over, which means we can all do a grand old U-turn and head back in to the city of Nain. Point number three, the power. Right? Jesus takes a man who was dead, certifiably dead, on his way to be buried, and he raises him back to life. And I don't want you to miss the significance of that last little phrase there, Jesus gave him to his mother. Remember, this whole narrative is really about her. She's been the focus from the beginning. It's her whom Jesus saw. It's her for whom Jesus has compassion. It's for her sake that he's done all of this. And so it's fitting that the narrative ends not with him, the son, but with the mother. Jesus gave him to his mother. You might think that after everything that's happened, Jesus would say to this young man, hey, listen, I want you to come with me. I want you to become an itinerant preacher. I want you to tell everyone about the great things that I've done for you, about my death-defying power and all that. But no, what does Jesus tell him to do? Just go back and do what you were doing before you died. Keep serving, loving, caring for your mother. Be her help and her support. Friends, oftentimes the faithfulness that the Lord calls us to, it can seem rather unspectacular. Like the great things that God calls us to do are often in the simplest avenues of life. It's just being a sacrificially loving spouse or being a devoted father who takes time each day to read to his children or being that tireless mother who compassionately cares for her sick children, or being a loving son, going back to Nain to care for your widowed mother. Jesus gave him to his mother, and from the mother's perspective, well, she couldn't have asked for anything else. Point number three, the power. So the providence, the pity, the power, that brings us to point number four, which is the praise. Look at verses 16 and 17. There are two praises there that Luke records the people as saying. Uh, we'll start with the second one first. God has visited his people. That's an Old Testament phrase, Old Testament terminology uh, for God visibly demonstrating his favor to his people. And so here the people have seen that Jesus has just raised someone from the dead. And so they acknowledge that something special is happening here. God has visited his people. But consider the other phrase. A great prophet has arisen among us. Hmm. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, which surely everybody present that day would have been, there is a story from the Old Testament that has some really striking resemblances to this story in Luke chapter 7. 
And that story is in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's a story of Elijah raising the son of the widow at Zarephath. What are some of the similarities? Well, Elijah meets the woman in the beginning of the chapter at a city gate. And the woman is a widow. She's got an only son. That only son dies, and he's brought back to life. All of that should sound really, really familiar. And here's the kicker. At the end of the story, 1 Kings 17, 23 says that Elijah delivered the child to his mother. Hmm. That's what the people are referring to here. A great prophet has risen among us. They're saying, Jesus is just like Elijah. Now, undeniably, right, there are some similarities between these two stories. And I think Luke, the author, intentionally is bringing out these similarities. He's highlighting these similarities. But where there are a lot of similarities, it's actually the differences that our eyes should be drawn to. So when I drink a Pepsi, I don't drink Pepsi often, but when I drink a Pepsi, because of how similar to Coke it tries to be, all I can think about is the differences. All I can think about how this is not Coke. The similarities serve to accentuate the differences. In the same way, think about these two accounts. You've got Elijah and you've got Jesus. They're similar, but all of the similarities make the differences that much more stark. And the main difference between these two stories, Elijah and Jesus, the main difference is that in order to raise the dead, Elijah... Well, he first has to carry the boy upstairs, lays him on the bed, cries out to the Lord, stretches himself over the child three times, prays again, and then finally it says, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the boy rose. But Jesus, all he does is speak the word. Young man, I say to you, Arise. Elijah has to go through all of this convoluted stuff and pray many times, and Jesus just speaks the word. And so, yes, Elijah is a great prophet. No one's denying that. Elijah is a great prophet, but Jesus is so much more than just another great prophet. <coughs> Jesus is much more than just a great miracle worker. Jesus is much more than just a great teacher. Jesus is God incarnate. Crowds, they don't see that. They, they praise Jesus as this great prophet in the mold of Elijah, but they fail to see him as the son of God, right? And that's a, that's a theme that's going to carry through all the way to the end of the gospel. But while the crowds may be confused, Luke doesn't want us to be confused about that at all. Uh, we, what we've just seen, right? Jesus bringing this young man back to life just by his word, that's not the work of a great prophet. That's the work of the Messiah. That's the work of God himself. And Luke wants us to know that. Because did you notice what Luke calls Jesus in verse 13? And when the Lord saw her, Luke calls Jesus the Lord. And that's significant because that's the first time in this gospel, like if you're reading it from the beginning, that's the first time in this gospel that Luke the author refers to Jesus as the Lord. Others have referred to him as the Lord, but that's the first time that Luke the author is drawing his reader's attention to the sovereign lordship of Jesus, God incarnate, the Son of God. Point number four, the praise. 
So you got the providence, the pity, the power, the praise, and that leads us to our fifth and final P, which is the picture. Because you read this story, and maybe at a, a surface level, you're, you're, you're left with this undeniable conclusion that something amazing has happened. Right? Like, this is a really big deal. Jesus just raised a guy from the dead. He canceled a funeral. Like, there's been similar events in biblical history with Elijah and Elisha, but nothing like this has ever happened before. But then there also might be a sense in which you're left wondering, okay, but what does this have to do with me? Like, yeah, Jesus raised this guy from the dead 2,000 years ago, but how does that help me to think about my own death and my own mortality? And that's where you need to see point number five, the picture. Because this story serves as a picture of the overarching narrative of the Bible. The Bible says that sin equals death, right? That death, all death is a result of sin. Not that every death is caused by a sinful act, but every death is a result of living in a sin-cursed world. We are all going to physically die. Uh, but even worse than our physical death is the fact that we are all by nature spiritually dead. We're, we're separated from God. We're, we're born with a sin nature, having descended from Adam and having inherited his sin. But also we choose to sin each and every day. And because of all that sin that we've committed against the holy God, not only are we separated from God, but we deserve the punishment of our sins, which is an eternity in hell. That's a third type of death, an eternal death. And so to use Paul's language, right, we are dead even while we're living. Even while we have life and breath in this life physically, like each of us in this room do right now, uh, we're born spiritually dead. We're on this funeral procession, so to speak, marching helplessly towards our eternal deaths. And in that, we're hopeless and we're helpless. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus stops that procession, so to speak. He sovereignly enters into our lives and he stops this inevitable march towards death. Young man, I say to you, arise. And just like that, everything changes. Even though we will still physically die, well, where there was once, once spiritual death, well, now there's spiritual life because we've been reconciled to God. And where there was once just eternal death awaiting us at the end, well, now there's this sure hope of eternal life. But how can that be? What about our sins? What about our sins that God must punish? Well, that's where the wonderful news of the gospel comes in because this same Jesus that we've been reading about in Luke chapter 7, uh, who so clearly demonstrates his power over death in this story, this same Jesus would, in love and compassion for sinners like us, he would subject himself to death. He would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And on the cross, he, he took all of our sins, all the sins of those who would believe in him, and he would suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we might be forgiven. So that all who trust in him might be made righteous and have eternal life. He died in the place of sinners. But remember, friends, this, this Jesus that we're dealing with here, well, he has power over death. And so, even when he dies and he is taken off of that cross, well, 
doesn't stay dead. You're probably familiar with the account of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20. Uh, Mary Magdalene, she's at the tomb. She's weeping because she thinks that Jesus is dead. Jesus appears to her. Uh, she supposes him to be the gardener. She doesn't recognize him. Do you remember what Jesus says to her? Woman, why are you weeping? I do not weep. Just like the widow at Nain, because the cause of her weeping had now been taken away. So the widow at Nain, she kind of gets the preview, right? Do not weep because you're going to get your son back for a while. He's going to die again, but do not weep because you're going to get him back for a while. But Mary Magdalene, you've got the reality that that preview points to, that that preview is a picture of. You've got the reality, the first fruits of eternal resurrection, her own resurrection being guaranteed in the indestructible life of the one who is standing before her. And so when Jesus rose again, right, he, he changes everything because it's not just that he's got power over death. That's something that he showed us in Nain. No, it's that he declares victory over death. He guarantees that everyone who is in him will share in that victory. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So practically, what does that mean for us? Well, what was once the scariest and most fearful of thoughts, right? Our mortality. Well, now that's something that the believer can, in genuine hope, look forward to. Because Jesus not only has power over death, but he's declared victory over it. And the death of loved ones in Christ. Yes, that is still a great source of grief because death is unnatural. Death is a product of this sin-cursed world. Like, death is not how things ought to be. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope because we, we look forward to being with them again in a place where death shall be no more. A place secured for us by the one who not only has the power of death, but has also proclaimed complete and absolute victory. And so I close with the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. I just think it's so beautifully, uh, so beautifully summarizes what we've been talking about here this afternoon. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? That's something that every believer needs to figure out. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is our only hope in life and in death. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his resurrection that we all hope for our own. Father, we pray that your children here this afternoon will be strengthened uh, in their faith and in their love for Jesus. Father, we pray for those who don't know you, for those who are still in their sin. Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation in which they come to see the glories of Christ and his resurrection. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. 
you can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.